Mark Stiegler, welcome to Behind the Fiction. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for inviting me, Steve. It is, it is always a pleasure to chat with you. You are the author of one of my favorite LMBPN series, and that is the Brain Trust series. And, and I have to say that there isn't a week that goes by when I don't have a thought in my head about transitioning this or that to the Brain Trust because I've, I've read them, I've listened to them on audio, and it's real. In my mind, it's a real thing, and I want it to be a real thing. And so I think about these things that could be transitioned to the Brain Trust. Can you give listeners who might not be familiar with the Brain Trust sort of, you know, what is it? Okay, well, so the, the founding event that separates our universe from the near future of the Brain Trust universe is that the American president uh, initiates deportation phase two, in which he expels all of the immigrants in the United States, and notably he drops the 101st Airborne into Silicon Valley to expel all those foreign engineers. Uh, so the Valley companies see this coming, so they anchor a fleet of cruise liners off the coast of San Francisco in international waters, and all the foreign engineers move out there. If you want to have a meeting between the American members of your programming team and your foreign members of your programming team, you just take a helicopter or a ferry out to the Brain Trust and you hold the meeting there. So as a consequence, this place where we were getting these one percenters in terms of engineering and scientific excellence, uh, this becomes the place where uh, the top one percent in engineering and science come uh, from all over the world. And so eventually it comes to be known as the Brain Trust. Uh, and that is where these stories all take place. All right. And, and it's not just... Well, they are, they are the, the, the top of the top in terms of brain power, but they don't come from privileged backgrounds in a lot of cases. They're just people who just happen to have really good thinking processes. So in book one, uh, it focuses on things at, at, at the very first brain trust archipelago, and most of them uh, are most of them are from, you know, like Google or Facebook, although the, the primary character actually comes from Bali. Uh, but uh, but as, the, as the books go forward, uh, they, they, they send uh, additional fleets of uh, brain trust ships here and there, and they are, uh, it's described by one of the characters as being like a mining undertaking where they're sending people out into the backwaters of the most impoverished places in the world, where there are very, very smart people, but they have no hope of ever going to college. Uh, many of them would not necessarily even learn to read and write, but, they, but we test them. Uh, they have an, an educational system and a testing system called Excel. Uh, and uh, so you can take the Axel test on a cell phone, and if you pass the Axel test on the cell phone, then then uh, then someone will come out and do a more thorough uh, engagement with you, decide whether you're the right kind of person, whether you've got the kind of grit, the integrity, and the uh, smarts to become a member of the Brain Trust community. And then they'll bring you on board. Uh, basically, they'll give you a scholarship for 
getting through college and becoming an, a brain trust engineer. So is this the kind of place where you would like to have spent your formative years? Because you spent a lot of years working in Silicon Valley yourself. Um, it certainly, certainly the brain trust has its attractions. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, well, if you read the book and you read about how the uh, Excel educational system works, I think you would find that uh, uh, it, it's designed in basically it it enables every person to self-actualize as much as they can as fast as they can to to be the very best they can be as soon as they can be it uh, and we actually have it, it turned out when i when i wrote the first book where i describe excel uh one of our beta readers uh jim kaplan uh actually did research in educational and testing systems, you know, he's a he's he's got a doctorate in behavioral psychology or something along those lines, and uh, so he gave me rafts of very useful criticism on how to make uh, the Excel educational system really sing. Okay, so it's a really good idea. So 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 it's uh, it's it's fiction reflecting what real life should be. I like that. So. You one of the one of the things that I enjoy in your books is is you always give credit to the people who have helped you with with ideas like you just mentioned with uh, Dr. Kaplan, and there are others that as you go through your research for the things that could be, and you you are a dogged researcher. I I get the sense that you are. Um, I was an HP lab research scientist for a time, okay. so it comes All with right. the territory. But you, you like to give credit for that, which is, which is great. But in, in, I mean, there's, there's different types of science fiction. In some types of science fiction, it's, hey, we're making stuff up and we're shooting ray guns and people are exploding and it's great fun. And there are others where you read through it and you go, could this possibly actually happen? And in some cases, some of the stuff that you described is in the works or is happening. And, and you kind of walk through some of that. And it's, I feel like I'm getting smarter when I read your books. <laughs> well, that's excellent. Thank you. Uh, my, my favorite of the, uh, first of all, this is true hard science fiction where all the science is real. So in that sense, it's like reading Isaac Asimov. One of the main ways I learned about uh, molecular biology was by reading Isaac Asimov's original Fantastic Voyage. Do not confuse that with the movie, the original Fantastic <laughs> Voyage. Okay, it was full of real, actual facts about biology. Um, my favorite example of, uh, of, of, a, of, a, of an invented technology for these books now is what is the cryptocurrency smart coin, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, uh, plays a very prominent role in the last book, which we just published, Re uh, Re Trust what? Requiem. Uh, and in this book, uh, basically the world goes into a global economic collapse uh, and uh, the smart coin algorithm, it's a cryptocurrency, the algorithm is designed to flatten the boom bust cycle. Okay. And this, this flattening of the boom bust cycle, uh, I worked with five economists and two cryptocurrency software engineers to design a currency 
that would in the real world flatten the boom bust cycle and get us out of this awful mess that Keynes first described back in the 30s. Um, so uh, in any event, so yeah, that's, that's an example of something that does not exist yet, but could and would solve a very significant uh, problem in today's world. All right. Now, and when you talk about things like that, the complexity of things like that, people might be thinking to themselves, wow, this is going to be a lot of work to read, to read these books. And it's not. First off, it's really fun. But, but you have you have clipped out some like one line teasers that we're going to be building quote graphics for. And I think that will give listeners a real sense of the writing, the humor. Um, why don't you read a few of those and kind of we'll, we'll talk through where the ideas for those lines came from. Okay, very good. So, uh, so these are teaser lines. The idea is to give you a flavor for what it's like to read the book without giving away any of the plot. Uh, and so we'll start out with a, a, uh, a quote from one of the characters in the book, uh, which on the one hand, what's being said here is so self-evident that it's surprising that I even, that anybody ever even has to say it. But here it is, uh, and it is, <clears throat> every girl should have her own supersonic fighter plane. All right. So who says that? Okay. Well, so for those of you, for those who have read the earlier books, I think it's pretty obvious. This is said by Ping, who is okay. the itty bitty ninja who, uh, who specializes in having the bigger gun. Yes. And she is absolutely fearless with the use of technology and things that fly. It's like, whatever. Yeah. What? <laughs> it'll be fine. <laughs> yes, that's right. So anyway, so that's her. Um, the second one, which gives you an idea of the more serious side of the story is, do it, starve the city, okay? And this one is actually from a flashback scene uh, that, that flashes back to a moment in the late, late, uh, uh, the, the final climax of Ode to Defiance, the book that precedes this, which is about the world pandemic that precedes the world economic collapse. Yes, okay. and for those scoring at home, this was published over a year ago. Yes, that is correct. Uh, so in any event, so that is uh, from, from, from that one. Uh, uh, th this was a scene that I had wanted to put into Ode to Defiance, but Ode to Defiance was already too large. And I can I try to not not do this scene at all, but it's a it's a fun scene in its own way, even though we're talking about starving the city uh, and uh, it's a poignant scene uh, and, and a very important thing happens during this scene that uh, that I had to go through through the uh, through it anyway. And so I do it as a flashback. Okay, so the next one is <clears throat> only a couple dozen are still alive, and wouldn't you know, one of them had to be a lawyer. <laughs> I love that one. I don't know if Judith is going to like that one, but I love that one. <laughs> <laughs> I fear that the fate of the lawyer in this particular example is uh, less than desirable. Uh, but uh, <laughs> there you have it. Um, uh, one more. Well, 
<clears throat> well, technically he's not my lover yet. I suppose I should tell him before I move in with him. So. All right. So now I'm curious who that was. And you may not want to give that away. Uh, yeah, in fact, I am not going to give that one away. This is a character that you have met, but she was uh, she was a very she she was a bit she was a bit player, very minor character, but she she really steps into the limelight in uh, the fifth book. Uh, the fifth book, you know, it really is the finale of the series. It wraps up uh, subplots dating all the way back to the very first book. Uh, and this is one of the subplots that I set up in the very first book uh, with two casual toss-off lines. Um, and you see this character in every one of the books, but you never pay any attention to her. She's part of the background. Okay. All right. Interesting. You talk about all the different threads that have weaved their way through the series, and you, you mentioned the toss-off lines in the first book. Was it your plan to actually use those lines for this purpose in a later book? And if so, did you know how far away that book would be? Did, did you know it would be <laughs> well, book five, or did you think it would be book three? <laughs> okay, first of all, uh, Lynn has the best description of uh, the Brain Trust series that I've heard yet, which is that it's a five-book trilogy. <laughs> That should be one of the that should be one of the quote graphics that we use. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I started out well. I started out writing one book, but but by the time I'd gotten halfway through the first book, I realized that there was more to this universe. You know, I built this entire world, and by the time I was halfway through the first book, I could see a series of additional plots, uh, and so it was at that point that I started. Uh, looking at some of these things that I was creating and knowing that, uh, that, that, uh, that they would show up uh, later book, in later books, some of them in the very finale. There's a subplot that starts with a terrorist uh, uh, burning the lock off of a hatch in one of the Brain Trust books. He burns it off using a strip of magnesium. And that is the beginning of a subplot which comes to fruition uh, in, the, in the great final climactic battle in book five. Uh, and at that particular moment, when it comes to fruition in book five, Colin Wheeler, one of the main characters, uh, breaks down in such a fit of laughter, in spite of the fact that there are 50 precision-guided munitions hurtling towards his ship, he breaks down in such laughter that he has to sit down for a moment before he can go back <laughs> to the control board. All right. So a little history for you. You, you, had, you were traditionally published with, with Bain Publishing, a, a, a hardcore science fiction line. Yeah. And then there was a lengthy break while you were working in Silicon Valley doing stuff that really smart people do. And then so you did something that really smart people don't do, decided to go back and write more books. Yeah, yeah. I was a uh, uh, well, so so you know, I, I, I've had a fairly varied career. I was a Fortune 500 executive uh, at the beginning of the 90s. Uh, I I then became a uh, basically a dot com uh, startup guy. Uh, I was a uh, uh, 
I was a turnaround specialist. Uh, if you mm -hmm. had a startup company, uh, this is in the dot-com boom. If you had a startup company and, and your, your, your 20 man programming team had spent uh, $10 billion and three years working on this thing and they still did not have a schedule when, for when they would have a product. Okay, at that point you call me in and I organize and that, you know, the, the description I just gave you was a description of one of the actual companies that I did a turnaround on. Uh, and um, so anyway, so I did that and then uh, 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 I was able to do a little bit of writing still while I was doing that, believe it or not, but eventually I wound up, you know, the dot-com boom came and went. I retired for a little while, wrote another book. Uh, and then I uh, wound up working for HP Labs. Uh, I first came in as a visiting scholar, then I became a research scientist there. And basically, as a research scientist, I used all of my words writing these academic papers. Uh, and so I just couldn't write. I couldn't write while I was doing that. So eventually, after uh, I retired, uh, I looked around and I completed a couple of software projects, uh, and then I turned back to writing. So, so and, but this time, it. as a as an indie author versus the traditional publishing years ago, and so there's there's a difference there. Yes. And then there's the difference over the course of the 20 years or so while you were off doing other things. Mm -hmm. And what was the biggest shock to you with the new world of publishing as, as opposed to what it had been before? Well, I don't know if this was the biggest shock, but certainly one of the funniest shocks uh, was uh, certain ways in which I am now engaged with the process and the people uh, in the doing of the book. You know, back in the 90s under traditional publication, I would, uh, I would write a manuscript, I would turn it in to Jim Bain, uh, he would send it back, he would send me the uh, galley proof, I would fix, you know, some of the more glaring uh, one sentence problems, and then I would send it back and I wouldn't, see anything or hear anything until the book came out and I'm looking at the cover and saying, hmm, that's an interesting cover. Uh, <laughs> he wants he, he he uh, one of my books. Uh, he put this, uh, the cover has this picture of this gigantic flying battleship cruising over the battlefield. Uh, well, there is a battlefield in, in the book and there is a vehicle uh, in the air over that battlefield. <laughs> But now this was this was back in 89. OK, and the vehicle that I described that is the real vehicle in the book is a is uh, I, in the in the story. It's called a sky hunter. Today it is called a predator. Mm -hmm. <laughs> OK, right. So it's so basically it's this very lightweight drone goes very slow, very large wings. Hunting the battlefield for uh, command and control headquarters to blow up, uh, and so that was, uh, which is very much the mission of the Predator today. But in any event, uh, so so that was one of the vehicles that I uh, invented for uh, David Sling. Well, anyway, so so now 
on the cover where they have this frail little predator-like drone, on the cover it's this gigantic flying battleship. <laughs> uh, but but so so in any event, in today's world, uh, one of the most amusing things is first of all, you, you know, we've been doing audible versions of all mm -hmm. of all of the frame trust books. Uh, and we got this uh, really delightful uh, narrator who is a, a Catherine McEwen, who is a, who, who is a breaking into the world of acting in Hollywood. And then she does audible books on the side. Uh, and, and anyway, so, so the brain trust, right? Everybody's, there are people from all over the world. Uh, and so they all speak with different accents. English is the language that everybody speaks on the brain trust, but they all speak it with all these different accents. And she, does all the accents she's she's, she's magical she's she yes. is so good with this series yes well so in any event so every time we do the audible version of a book what happens is first she'll read the book to see what it is she's narrating and when she gets done there's always a number of uh terms that i have used i mean this is hard science fiction right so there's always a number of terms that i've used that she will come back to me and say so how do I pronounce that? Okay. And so what I do to answer this is I go through her list of words and I record the correct pronunciation and then I send that to her, right? So this is all entirely new, you know, in comparison with TradPub. First of all, doing an audible version at all was very rare in those days. Second of all, uh, interacting directly with the narrator uh, having her ask me questions about things. Oh, she does corrections for the book too. Uh, she, I have, uh, I have sentences that are, uh, that are spoken by characters who are explicitly stated to be British. She's from Britain. And so, and so every once in a while she'll come back to me and say, you know, a Brit wouldn't say it this way. This is how a Brit would say it. So, so she, she helps me correct the story as well. It's all pretty <laughs> wonderful actually. And I know something that I don't know whether this is something that you're enjoying because you're a research scientist or something that you loathe, but you're, you're throwing yourself into Facebook advertising. Oh my gosh. Yes, I am. You know, this is way outside my comfort zone. Marketing has always been my failure. Uh, I've never been able to, to promote successfully. Uh, but I seem finally, after three years of the most frighteningly unsuccessful uh, advertisements in the history of Facebook, <laughs> uh, I've, I finally seem to have a few advertisements that are reaching the people who will truly enjoy the book and persuading them to go ahead and click through and buy it. It's, it's, it's satisfying uh, seeing that I'm at least a little bit now able to connect with the people who should be, who, who, who would really enjoy these books if they just knew that they, sh that they would want to read them. That, and that's part of the problem with, with publishing today is just, there are so many books. It's just finding your audience. And once you find your audience, then they help to promote the books for you. Yes. Yes. So that's the plan. 
that's the plan. And uh, there was never a doubt that you would figure this out. It was just a question of when. <laughs> All right, last question for you. And this is something that I asked your wife, Lynn, when, when I interviewed her. The last question I asked her is, what was it like to edit your husband's book? So I'll ask you, what's it like to have your wife edit your books? Yeah. So I partially overheard your conversation with her earlier in the day, uh, although I had left the room for, 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 the, for, for the period of that uh, uh, conversation. Normally, she sits in one couch surrounded by her computer gear. I sit in the other couch surrounded by my computer gear. And every once in a while, uh, as she's editing along through somebody else's book, she'll say, I need a word. <laughs> and I'll look up and she'll read me the sentence and I'll say, uh, it, you know, the, the word that needs to be replaced is obvious. And so I'll suggest a word and she'll say, thank you. And then we'll, we'll type along for a while. And then I'll come to this place and I'll say, I need a word. <laughs> so it actually works pretty well uh, most of the time. Now, when she's editing my books, she is right about one thing which is that when she starts laughing at something in, in one of my books, uh, uh, it's very, very hard for me to restrain myself from asking, <laughs> so what was it that you found so funny that you burst out laughing? Yeah. So, so you know, I, my discipline fails sometimes. <laughs> Excuse me. She edited your books at, when you were at Bain as well, right? Or did she not? I know you were published with Bain and she was working. Yeah, 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 yeah. She, she, she edited for Bain. Um, I, basically, I introduced her to Jim and Tony and she said, uh, uh, yeah, I'm an avid reader. And she got uh, I'm not re I don't remember exactly how she wound up becoming an editor for them. But uh, no, she didn't actually edit my books uh, at Bain. Okay. I, so this is a my, first then. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's much more intense. Uh, at Bain, okay, so at, with, with, with a trad pub organization like Bain, you have to turn in a book that is very well done. You can't have it saturated with run-on sentences or, or sentence fragments, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, you, you, you can't have something that has just endless uh, consistency failures. Uh, if, if Jim Bain or Tony uh, were to look at that and uh, were, were to start reading a book like that, they'd just throw it back to the uh, nominal author. Okay, so the quality of the writing uh, in Trad Pub coming out of the, of the author's typewriter was, uh, was, 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 was extreme by modern standards. Mm -hmm. uh, Lynn is supplying a new skill, which is she's taking uh, uh, stories that are still a little bit rough and massaging them into works of considerably greater beauty. Uh, in those days, we just had a proofreader, right? Just a, uh, and, and one of the things that, uh, yeah, it, 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 was, it was mostly proofreading. Uh, and, and, and that was as far as it went most of the time. Okay. And you used a word that some of our listeners may not be familiar with, typewriter. Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> yeah, the good old days. Um, 
what was it like back then when you couldn't just backspace five times to change a word? Um, it was, uh, it involved being much more careful. <laughs> you know, I, I learned to type when I was 14 years old. Uh, I typed, uh, you know, I type at about 80 words a minute. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you had to be very you, you 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 had to be very careful when you were typing in those days. Now I was among the first people in you know in the country to get myself an uh, an IBM PC desktop so that I could start using a computer to uh, write and edit my stories. Uh, and I remember I, I for three thousand dollars. I bought a six meg megabyte hard disk. <laughs> and you probably thought to yourself, I could never fill that up. <laughs> <laughs> six megabytes is hard, is actually hard to fill up when all you're doing is creating ASCII text. Yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, basically, the, you know, I mean, the entire brain trust series of converted to pure ASCII text, text is, uh, you know, uh, well, actually, it would just about fill a six megabyte hard disk. Okay, never mind. <laughs> there you go. All right, but but you mentioned the entire Brain Trust series. So coming out simultaneous with this with this interview is a box set of the entire Brain Trust series. So if yes. you have not been reading along, and if you have, then certainly you've read them all already. Because if you read the first one, you're going to want to read the second, and the third, the fourth, and the fifth. But if you haven't been reading along, this is a great time to get a great deal on this series. And it is, it's incredibly well written. The stories are great. Um, the people who love it, love it. There are, there are people who are put off by the politics because you seem to hate all politics. And <laughs> That's right. It, it's not just, oh, he doesn't like this side or he doesn't like that side. It's you're mocking everybody. In, in, yes, in I'm, I'm making fun of everybody. If you cannot laugh about your personal favorite politician, uh, this is probably not the right series to uh, read. But if you're a little bit mellow, uh, if you know the answer to the question, how do you know a politician is lying, which is Steve. He's, his uh, lips, he's moving his mouth. Yep. Lips yep, are moving. Yep. His lips are moving. Okay, so if you if you if you understand that, and so you're a little bit mellow about it, then I think you'll just enjoy it. So it's a great value, and wow, these are the last two books are massive. This is a lot of reading material. Um, you're you're going to really enjoy this. So, Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you for sharing your one-liners and your stories, and uh, we wish you the best with the box set. Yes, thank you.